So let me give you kind of the recap, because this is it. We, we said five weeks ago that we, we could explain the gospel, which is just a, a, a biblical word for the good news. That's what gospel means, the good news of Jesus. We should be able to explain that in about 60 seconds. We have, if somebody says, hey, tell me, about, tell me about what you believe, or if we're in a conversation, a spiritual conversation with someone, and, and, and we start driving that conversation towards Jesus and who he is and, and God's plan, God's good news for people, we ought to be able to do that in, in 60 seconds, maybe two minutes. But we've spent five weeks really kind of diving deep into hopefully understanding what the good news is so that when we communicate it, it's not just some uh, a track that we pull out. It's not just some plan where all the letters start, all the words start with the same letter and we can regurgitate something, but, but that we, we truly understand what God's good news is so that we could even say it from our own words. But because sometimes it is easier to, to place things in a sequential order and a way to understand, we, we've gone five weeks. And so I want you to imagine this football field on the floor and, and moving the ball down the field with, with step one, step two, step three, step four. You go back to the very first week. And so I'm kind of, if you're taking notes or you want to write this down in your Bible, this would be a great time to summarize the gospel. We started with the fact that God is good and he does good things. That's, what, that's where the good news of Jesus, that is where, where God's plan of salvation starts, that God's a, God is a good God. He created an incredible creation. He made humans and created them to be in relationship with them. He placed Adam and Eve in this garden of Eden, this, this paradise. And so that's where it began. But then it, the, the story got dark pretty quickly. And we moved into week two. God is good and he does good things. But we look around us and the world has problems because there's sin problems in the world. And we said the world's problems are people problems. God made this good world and then we sinned. That, that's part of the gospel. Sin broke the world. Adam and Eve did it uh, on, a, on a macro level. We've done it, probably some of us this morning, on a micro level. And sin brings pain. And sin brings brokenness. It brings pain and brokenness into our own life. It also brought brokenness into the world. That is, that is the overarching answer when people go, well, I don't understand if God is good, why are there things like hurricanes and why are there things like cancer? Because we broke God's good creation. Sin destroyed the world. And then we moved into week three and, and we saw the bad news and we moved to the good news. When we couldn't do anything, God did everything. He started it off well. We broke it. And because we're broken, we couldn't fix it. But God came and fixed it for us through Jesus Christ. He left heaven. God himself became uh, Jesus, who was God incarnate, walked the earth, did what we did, did it perfectly, died on the cross so that justice could be borne out for the sin of the world, took that on himself so that we could be made right with God. Now, for most people, the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, we just talk about kind of what we did in week two and week three. The world's broken, Jesus fixed it, which is true. But we want to see that God kind of back up kind of the prequel. God started things off good. We broke it. Jesus fixed it. And then last week, Chris took us into week four that we have the opportunity, now that we've been saved by Jesus and our life is different, to join him in his work here on the earth as he's moving to restore the earth back to his original intention. That's where this idea of social justice comes from. And that's why, that's why we go out and we do a, a Collide Impact and a Collide Impact Weekend. We, we're, we're going to bring Jesus' restorative work back to this broken world. 
knowing that we won't on our own ever, ever make that happen. But we're, we're joining him in the work that he is doing. So, so let me give you an, an example or maybe help us get on the same page. I've been even kicking around. I don't know if I can do this just because of time. But I've been kicking around like we, we need to have like a youth ministry night once a month that's like, uh, you know, join us. we're talking about this and kind of hit a hot topic because, you know, in our culture today, it seems like every month we get fired up about something and have social media debates, right? You know, I mean, I can't even take you, I can't even put them all in order. But right now, it's refugees, right? Um, that, if you get on Facebook, I had a conversation today with somebody just to, hey, let, let's not just buy everything that we see, you know, in a social media post. But, but here's, here's the deal. As a believer, a follower of Jesus, we ought to be motivated to, to bring justice to the world. We ought to be motivated to do something about a refugee problem. Now, how we do that is where, as believers, we may disagree. Some believers may go, hey, we, we open up our country and we invite everybody in. Other believers go, hey, I don't think that's the wise thing. I think we should do option B. Or hopefully, we can think through also option C and option D. That, that's, the, that's the main problem with social media debates and, and water cooler debates, is usually we get fixated on option A and option B, and forget that God gave us the ability to be creative and problem-solve and come up with option C or option D or option E. down. And so we just kind of argue this point or that point. What is true of followers of Jesus, whether you believe refugees ought to come into this country or we ought to do something there or whatever, what is true of all believers is we should be concerned about refugees. Does that make sense? The, the solution of how we enact our concern, that's where the political debate comes and people are, are, are on different places and we can have those healthy debates. But if we go, as a believer, I follow Jesus and I don't care about people who are persecuted. I don't care about people who are uh, living in, uh, in, in a place that, that is dangerous to live in and, and I don't care about that. We probably shouldn't call ourselves pro-life because pro-life isn't just inside the womb and immediately outside the womb. Pro-life affects refugees as well. Again, but how we go about that, we can debate. How we go about that, uh, people inside one, the same church can, can disagree and, and have those ideas, but we have to agree that the issue is important. But here's the problem. We get so caught up in the ideology and the argument that we have mental debates that sometimes turn into emotional debates that rarely turn into physical action. Jesus never called us to have ideological debates, to, to talk about the poor. He called us to feed the poor. He didn't call us to talk about people in prison and how to make solutions. He called us to, to go visit prisoners. Now, to be fair, not all of us can do everything. You know, um, Now, I, I want to see a solution to refugees. God has not called me to spend my life doing that. He's called me to spend my life discipling families. But at the same time, my support, and I need to look at my, my wallet, and I need to look at opportunities that God places in front of me to engage in that refugee, refugee discussion and practice an implementation of truth. So we're not all, we're not, we can't just go solve the refugee problem this month and then whatever the crisis of the month is next month. We can be, but we have to do a little bit more than talk because we are called in, in, in week four this this fourth step of the gospel, to engage our world and, and, and begin to bring the kingdom of God here. Does that make sense? 
And so but we, I just want to say to us as adults who are leading teenagers, and I'm, and I'm certainly guilty of hypocrisy when I say this, we've got to do more and talk less um, and, and whatever that way looks like. That brings us into week five, the final. God is good. He created it. We broke it. Jesus fixed it. We're joining Jesus in his work to bring the kingdom here. And then week five, kind of the summation of the gospel, which we don't talk about a whole lot, that there's going to come a time where God makes everything new again. 2012, the Mayan calendar told us we were all going to die. You remember that? Um, if it wasn't the Mayan calendar, we, and we got the movie 2012, kind of this apocalyptic movie. If it wasn't that, it, it's, it's some other group saying that Jesus is coming back on April 17th, 2017, and you need to be right. And, and that happens all the time. Back in 2012, there were over 1,000 people detained or arrested in China from this cult that was called the Almighty God cult because they were looking at that Mayan calendar and saying, hey, on Friday, the world is going to end. There's going to be three days of darkness ushered in, and so we're need to, we need to go overthrow the government now. Well, the government in China wasn't real big on that idea. And so a 1,000 people, I, I say that, I mean, to think through that, that, that's a lot of people. They, they got caught up in this end-of-the-world ideology. <coughs> there was a guy named Lee who's in China, and, and during that, he started making these gigantic fiberglass balls. I've got some pictures of them, uh, kind of an exterior one, and then there's an interior picture we'll show you in a second. But he made these, uh, these giant pods that float on water, and they're, they're structurally pretty sound because they're a sphere, and he was selling these. I don't remember how many he made, but I mean, it's a dozen or so, and he was selling them. It's, it's your end-of-the-world survival pod. So you can get inside. Here's a picture of the inside, like, which is kind of cool that he made that, but I think if I had to stay in there for more than 12 hours, I'd probably just embrace the end of the world at that point. But you can get one, you can buy one, and if, if the world floods or if you know, there's a bomb, it's, it's more structurally sound. You, it, like I said, it could float on water. So you, you could survive and have a meaningless existence at the same time in your pod. But, you know, that, but people are, I mean, this guy's spending time and energy and money doing that because people fear the end of the world. And so that's kind of what we're talking about. What happens at the end? What happens when, when Jesus comes back? Now, I'll tell you this. I don't know a whole lot about eschatology. Eschatology is the fancy word for end times. Um, that's the, that's the, I use that word because it made my parents proud since they paid for my schooling. Uh, and just saying end times, that's eschatology, so I sound really smart. I don't know a whole lot about it for several reasons. One, when you go through Daniel and you read through Revelation, you've probably read it. Our kids... I mean, they, they eat it up. Anytime you go, hey, what kind of, you want to do a Bible study? Yeah, Revelation. Because they want to, they want to know this, this apocalyptic literature and what happens at the end and what should I look for. But it is very hard to interpret. And so, for one, I just had, this has never been something that was, I was passionate about. Not that it's not important. I just, it wasn't just on the, the, the front burner for me. The second reason why I haven't really got into it is because Jesus made it pretty clear Nobody knows when he's coming back. Nobody knows, even with the apocalyptic literature, when that end is going to come. And so I've kind of just, in my life, walked the path of going, if Jesus said I'm not going to know, why am I spending so much time trying to figure it out? You know, and again, not that that's not important. I think some seminary professors ought to do that. If it's interesting to you, go for it. It is scripture and it is breathed of God. Go after it. But the third reason why. I don't really spend a whole lot of time in this area 
And if you come and ask me questions, I'm going to go, I don't know. Let me give you a couple books maybe you can read. And this is, this is going to sound rude. And I don't mean it to sound rude because it's about me. I'm not loving my neighbor really well. I, I, I'm not the best dad that, that I need to be. Um, I, I don't share the gospel with enough people in my, in my daily life. And so I'm kind of in this position of going, okay, I need to get better at loving my family. I need to get better at leading God's church. I need to get better at loving my neighbor. I need to get better at controlling my thought life. I need to get better at controlling sarcasm so that I can be aligned in the will of God and be the man that he's called me to be. And so just quite honestly, that takes a lot of my time. And, and so I just don't have the time to get into what, is, what does Revelation mean when it's talking about the locusts and is that an Apache helicopter and is Magog, Russia, and all of this. I, I just don't care. And again, that's not, if you do, wonderful. It's just, I got two neighbors that I know live on either side of me that are lost, and I'm spending more time trying to figure out how to build a relationship with them so that at least I can tell them about Jesus so they're ready when he does come back rather than figuring out what it looks like before he does. Does that make sense? That's me. So that's not judgmental on anybody else. That's just, that's just kind of where I'm at. But I think what happens is we get so caught up in those details of what is it going to look like and, and what does this verse mean and who does this represent that we sometimes miss the forest for the trees. And so for us, I think we've got to look on a, on a, on a macro level. Let me, let me give you an example. So if you're a football fan, I'm going to use this illustration since we're doing Game Changer. Joey Bosa was a, a rookie football player for the San Diego Chargers this year. Played at Ohio State. In the time that he got drafted to come into San Diego, there was kind of sports news because he refused to sign his $25 million contract. Okay? And so he ended up signing that contract like just a couple of weeks before training camp started. And, and there was all the news, the Chargers were trying to manipulate the uh, fan base against him so he'd sign. And he was saying this so the fans would understand. What, what it boiled down to really wasn't about money. It was $25 million. And if I understand the debate correctly, they, they both agreed on the $25 million. What they disagreed on was when it was going to be paid out. And was it going to be paid out at this month or was it going to be paid out traditionally like the other rookie contracts had in the next year? And so the debate was in the details, which is what agents should worry about. I mean, that's their job. That's what a sports agent should do is get into the details of that contract and figure it out. For us, as, as call us lay people to the football world, we look at stories like that and we're like, dude, it's $25 million dollars. You care that if you get it in September or in February, I'll take it three Februarys from now. You know, I, you know I'm not going to argue about that. We see it from this big, we go, $25 million, who cares about when you're going to get it? It's important to agents. And the details of eschatology, the details of the end times should be important to people like seminary professors and scholars who are studying those things and helping us understand scripture. But for regular people, we would do better to spend our time looking at Revelation, Daniel, the end time from a macro level, not getting so knee deep in the weeds that, that we, we miss the truth. And what we're supposed to see when we read about the end and we read about Jesus coming back is that God is going to renew all things. That's the end of the gospel. How, when, where, I don't know. What we do know is that the scripture is clear that God is coming back and he is going to take plan A that we messed up and he's going to fix it 
and we're going to have a, a, a new heaven and a new earth. So we're going to look at some passages of Scripture here in a second. I want you to go to Romans chapter 8. We see a pretty important passage to this discussion. And we're going to look at a couple different passages. I, I like to kind of stay in one for the week. So as you're talking with your kids, you can just go back to one instead of flipping all over. But um, we're just going to see kind of some, some, some pictures of this from the Scripture from Old Testament, Gospel, and New Testament. But look at verse chapter 8. Verse 19, Paul says this, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility or, or the creation was, was made, made utterly helpless to, to accomplish its purpose in fully glorifying God. Creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What, what Paul tells us here in this, he says, hey, the world, when we, we discovered this back in, in week one and two, the world is broken, and, and from the moment it, it became broken, it ceased to do what God created it to do, which was to fully magnify him. And so, so it, it is to this day waiting and longing the creation that God made to, to be renewed and to be restored what Paul tells us. And he uses this, this word that it's groaning. There's this aching. There's this desire. Here, here's what this means in, in, in practical terms so you can get the picture of how, how amazing God is. Let me, let me illustrate it. A couple of years, well, a couple of years ago, when I was a kid, I lived in Germany for three years. And my parents, along the way, they would take us on, you know, day trips and even some overnight trips. You're living in Europe. You should do that. When you're a seventh grader or an eighth grader, Trips around Europe mess up Nintendo time, you know? And so it was never, never like a big deal. Like, hey, do you want to go see this castle that has 900 years of history? No, because I have Mario Brothers. This is New Schwanstein Castle. I remember as a junior high kid who, who didn't care about traveling or seeing Europe, really. I remember as we were on this trip to this castle, I remember coming around the bend on the mountain and you see a view similar to this. And I remember as a junior high kid going, oh, wow, okay, that, that's impressive. Here, here's a picture of it during winter. I mean, <laughs> right? This incredible picture, this, this view that, that you go, man, I've got to stop for a minute to catch my breath. You ever been to the Grand Canyon? There's, there's a picture of that. I've got a couple of pictures of some things. I mean, if you have the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon, it's one of those things too. You walk up to the edge and you look out over it and you can't even really get the full picture of the canyon even you know, on the horizon line. It's so much wider than you can see. But you have these moments where you just have to stop and go, creation, this creation has taken my breath away. Here's another picture of a place. It's just beautiful. The mountains, the river. You had moments like that, right? If you've been to Grand Canyon, you've had this sunset that you went, wow, look at that. Kids took a picture of it, with Instagrammed it, made sure everybody knew it was no filter, you know, that it was the, it was the real deal. Now, now, here's what I want us to understand. These pictures of creation are groaning, trying to become what they were fully intended to be, which means they are not even the extent of what God's plan is. That sunset that you saw that took your breath away was a broken sunset. 
This picture of this river with the mountains around it is a broken creation. So let that sink in for a minute of what God has in store for us when he makes all things new. This is groaning, groaning right now because it wants to give God his full glory and that is a limited picture of God's glory. That, that says something about the majesty and goodness of God, does it not? And Paul says, hey, hey it, it is not fully here yet. And then he goes on in verse 22 and he says this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And I'm not going to get into this all today, but when, when, when God makes everything new, we're going to have new bodies as well. And again, what does that look like? How, how, how does it work? I don't know. But, but it's going to be made new. Disease is going to be gone Death is going to be history. And Paul gives us this picture of a, of a woman giving birth. He says that the creation is groaning in childbirth. Now, full disclosure, I've never had a child, okay? I mean, I have to, but I didn't physically have the child. So when we talk about the groaning of childbirth, I have to defer to the women. I do know that standing alongside my wife while our first child was being born was not something where I thought, this sounds like a lot of fun. Not, not at all. And I remember, I remember that night where, or early, early morning when she woke me up and she said, it's, it's time, the contractions are here, we've got to go. And, and I remember going to the hospital and we were there for I don't know, three or four hours and, and being checked out and, the, and the, the nurses came in and they said, hey, you're not, you're not dilated enough. I think these are false contractions. And we were about two weeks before the date, the due date. And they said, so we're going to send you on home. And so we've been there morning to about lunch, and so we get in the car, and it happened to be Amanda's birthday when this was happening. And I remember driving down Austin Avenue, and I don't understand the groanings of childbirth, but I do know my wife looked at me, and she said, this is the worst birthday ever. <laughs> I remember that. And I'm thinking, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what to do. You know, I can't help you. We get home. The, the nurses said, hey, just draw a warm bath. Let her sit in the warm bath and, and uh, get her some soup. And so Amanda's in this warm bath, and, and I'm cooking some soup and cooking, microwaving some soup and uh, getting it ready. And, and, and we're talking kind of back and forth through the house, and she's like, she's like, the contractions are like three minutes apart, or she's, I don't remember exactly what it was. And so I remember calling our doctor and, and saying, hey, here's the deal. This is what's going on. And we went to the hospital. They sent us home because uh, she wasn't dilated enough, but the contractions are however minutes apart. And the doctor goes, get her out of the bath and get her to the hospital right now. I'll call the hospital. And we were, oh, okay, it's game time. Like, you know, microwave still going. Like, I'm like, you know, we got to go back to the hospital. Get back to the hospital. And, and having that discussion with the anesthesiologist, because they were waiting for the doctor to get there before they gave the, you know, the, what's it called? The feel-good medicine, that's what it's called. And uh, I mean, the doctor's like, well, we want to wait. And I was like, listen, I can't live with this woman without it. So, you know, she, she will hate me forever for this, you know, you got to do something. And I remember that standing in the hospital, and I remember listening, feeling a little bit, if you could, of the pain of childbirth, this groaning. But Paul uses this picture because he wants us to understand that just like childbirth and through that pain, it ends in glory, right? I mean, moms, you're in here probably because you had a child. They're a teenager now. 
I mean, I would guess that when you held that newborn baby in your arms for the first time, that your first thought wasn't, well, you made me hurt a whole lot. You know, I mean, that, that wasn't your thought because the pain, while it was there, was temporary and it's been replaced by something new and something unbelievable. And Paul gives us this picture. And he says, creation's groaning and it is, it is groaning because it is moving towards something new that is glorious that God is going to bring and fulfill his ultimate plan. So, what I want us to do now, I want us to look at a couple passages in the Old Testament. Because we can listen to Paul, but I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 25. And I'm not going to give you commentary on this. We're going to look at two passages in Isaiah. I just, I just want you to hear the text from Scripture, the word of the Lord that, that he spoke through the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus. Because this plan started in the garden. We talked about that. Remember that, that Jesus said from the woman's seed, the serpent's going to be crushed. I mean, God had a plan then. But look what God says to the prophet Isaiah in his Isaiah chapter 25. Oh, I forgot what verses it are. Verses 6. He says, on this mountain, this is prophecy and poetry, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts makes for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. He is going to swallow up death forever. He's going to wipe away tears because there is a renewal coming. Go over to Isaiah 65, the end of this passage or this prophecy from Isaiah. Look what he says in verse 17. Again, no commentary. I'm just going to let it speak for itself. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. This is a picture of the future. Verse 20. No more shall there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, said, there's coming time where things are going to be different. There's coming a time where there will be no more pain. There's coming a time where, where the lion and the, or the lamb and the wolf lay together, where the lion 
each straw, that, 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 that there's peace. And then we move to the time of Jesus. I'm not going to read the passage of Scripture, just remind you, though, that in Jesus walked the earth, what he was doing, living inside an Old Testament context, he was painting a picture of what was coming. What did he do? He eradicated disease, didn't he? Laid hands on people, because in the new kingdom, what was being ushered in, there is no disease. And you remember Lazarus, who is dead? In the new kingdom, there is no death. When God renews all things, he swallows up death. And Jesus was already painting this picture as he told Lazarus to come forth out of that tomb. It was a picture of what kingdom living and the new kingdom looked like. And then we move to Revelation. Be the last thing you flip to. Go to the very back, Revelation chapter 21. Verse 1. Now tell me if this doesn't sound a little bit familiar to what we've just read the prophet Isaiah saying 700 years before this. 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That word in the Greek has, the word new has different, different words. Neo is one word for new. It means like a beginning in time or a new origin. And then there's the, the word uh, kanos, which means new in nature. And that's, that's the word that, that's used here. Behold, I'm making all things new in their nature. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it's done. I am the alpha, the beginning of the Greek alphabet, and the omega, the end of the Greek alphabet. I'm the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spirit of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See this picture in Revelation 21 that, that mirrors what the prophet Isaiah said. It's a reflection of what Jesus did as he ushered in the kingdom. It says, listen, this broken world, your broken life, Jesus is redeemed. Now we're joining Jesus in his work until he comes back to make kingdom of, on heaven, kingdom here, because we know what happens at the end is this good God, this loving God is going to make all things new. That's, that's the full picture of the gospel. This beautiful good news. So what does that mean to us? You know, one thing it means to us is that you and I, we can make hope our default. We should. If we know that we are sitting somewhere in week four, week one happened at the beginning, week two happened with Adam and Eve, and then we've kind of continued week two and extended out. Week three, we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, but we're living in week four, joining him in his work. We're looking towards week five. We're looking towards God making all things new. And when we know that that is going to happen, hope rests in our heart. It changes the way, it changes the way we see the world. It changes the way we respond. 
Back in 2011, there was a, an earthquake that hit Christchurch, New Zealand. And there was, there was a young lady named Emma who was in the building that she worked in. This is a picture of it. And, and I, it, was, it was a fairly large earthquake. It collapsed the building on top of her, and she was trapped inside the rubble. But she had her cell phone. And she was in, in a space where she could move around a little bit. And even with a building all around her, she had a cell signal. And in the chaos that was happening all over Christchurch in New Zealand, she was able to get a text message out to her fiancé. And she said, I'm alive. I'm just trapped inside the rubble. And so he texted her back, I'm coming. And he took off and got emergency workers and people and said, my fiancé is, is in here somewhere. And for six hours... Hundreds of people labored to remove that rubble. And during those six hours, they kept communicating back and forth via text. He told them, hey, your family's here. We're, you know, we're, we're getting you. We're, 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 we're pulling away the rubble. Had this conversation back and forth. Six hours later, they get to her, and she's saved. Cool end of the story is 72 hours after that, here's a picture of where they were. They were getting married because their wedding was three days after that. And so you can see all the news cameras around because of the, what an incredible story this was. But, but think for a second. Think for a second when you're inside, if you're Emma and you're inside that, that trapped building and you don't have a cell phone. You don't have text messaging going back and forth. You know how important those text messages were back and forth? Those text messages delivered hope. Those text messages said someone's coming they said, hey, you're not going to die in here. This is not the end. We're coming after you. There will be a sunlight. There will be a wedding. We're coming after you. You have no text messaging. You have no hope. That, that changes your entire perspective on where you live, right? I mean, it would me, thinking that there's, there's nobody's going to be able to find me. I'd be yelling and screaming until I had no words left. She didn't have to do that. She didn't have to panic. She didn't have to live freaked out. She was able to live for six hours with peace because she knew hope was right around the corner. That, that's, what, that's what week five, that's what the end of the gospel gives us. That, that if, if you are an anti-Trump person and you go, man, I think he's going to, I think he's going to destroy everything. Well, hey, guess what? You don't have to live in fear. You can live in hope. If you look at the way the world is spinning, and maybe not in political things, but other things that, you, that they bother you and they stress you out, your finances, your personal finances, maybe not where they need to be. Family life may not be what you intended to be. It doesn't mean we just quit. We do move towards those things. But we know that God has things in control and that he is moving towards the goal line of this game-changing gospel that brings hope and everything is going to be made new. We get panicked. And Peter Kreef said it this way. He said, we respond to troubles in the world in a way that we should never respond if we had hope. He said, if you were a millionaire, it, it would be like a millionaire getting upset over a penny. Because what's coming? He said, or even more than that, it would be like a millionaire getting upset over one of his pennies being scratched. Because ultimately, the 70, 80 years here have meaning but we have an eternity in the new heaven and the new earth that God is going to make new. That should change the way we think. Again, it doesn't mean we quit. We're still in week four. We're still living there now. We're still trying to disciple our kids. We're still trying to get our finances in order so that we can live a kingdom life and not the American dream that turned into a giant credit card debt. We're still, we're still in the midst 
of the, of the journey, but we know where it ends, and it helps us to see where we're going. So it ought to change our perspective. And so as you're getting stressed out, frustrated this week, as your kids start complaining, let's redirect our thoughts to what, what God is already about doing, the gospel, the good news of bringing a new heaven and a new earth. Here's the second thing, though, that we need to do. We we need to make sure our kids and our neighbors and our friends are, we need to repent. Here's what, in all of those seven verses of Revelation 21, where we see that there's no pain and, and, and there's no tears and there's no death, it says, but it's for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for those who are sinners. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I don't want that for my friends. I don't want that for my neighbors. I want them to experience the end of the gospel. I don't want that for you. And so if there's never been a point in your life where you've repented, where you fall in category of verse 8, you need to do business with God because he's got a better plan for you. It's a good news plan because he loves you. I'll close with this story and then give you three or four minutes to talk, maybe just to reflect or catch up. I love this story. It starts off kind of tragic because it's a story of a, of a dad who had a son and his, the, the wife and the son's mother died when the boy was at was a young age. And so the dad was walking this journey as a, as a widower trying to provide for his son both fatherly experiences plus trying to be aware of, of motherly experiences. He's walking this difficult journey. And so one of the things that he had, this idea of he said, hey, we're going we're gonna to go on a picnic, a picnic on Saturday morning Take, or Saturday for lunch. We're going to go out and go to the park, set it all up. And, and, and he started telling his son about it. Hey, tomorrow afternoon, we're going to go on a picnic. It's going to be me and you, and it's going to be fantastic. And his son is getting excited about it through the course of the day. Friday night, son goes to bed, dad goes to bed. Dad falls asleep, son can't sleep. Son, it, it, he is just so wired about the picnic tomorrow. And so in the middle of the night, he hasn't slept well, he gets up and comes to the side of his dad's bed. And he says, Daddy, Daddy, I can't sleep. And his dad says, you know, what's wrong? He said, Daddy, I can't sleep. I'm, I'm just so excited about the picnic tomorrow. I can't, I can't make my eyes close. I can't make my brain turn off. I can't go to sleep. And his dad said, well, son, you know, we, you got to get some rest because we want the picnic to be great. You're using all those parental ploys he can think of. We want the picnic to be fabulous, and it won't be fabulous unless Daddy sleeps, you know, <laughs> and you sleep. So go back to bed and lay down and uh, Kid goes back, and he lays down. Dad falls asleep. Sometime later, dad doesn't even know how long. Son's back in his room, and he's waking him up, and his dad says, what, now what? And his son said, Daddy, I just want to thank you for tomorrow. That's where we sit today. In the midst of week four, doing justice and bringing the kingdom of God here, looking towards week five, saying to God, Daddy, I just want to thank you for tomorrow because I know what's coming. That should be a game-changing perspective for how we live. Let me pray for us.